So today's episode is by Strong and Sussman. You may remember those names. They did a few episodes. Uh, Body and Soul, Prophecy, Author, Author, and Renaissance Man over on Voyager. They will also do several episodes later on in Enterprise, including Regeneration, Damage, and a decent chunk of Season 4 stuff. Kind of split up between the two of them. This was also directed by David Livingston. This is... This is the weirdest episode to cover so far for me. I know, I'm only on the third episode. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like I'm only three episodes in. It, it feels like I'm seven miles into this arduous journey. I'm never going to make it, guys. I'm never going to make it. Um, <clears throat> It feels far in. I think partially because of how much this has been taking out of me to do. But, but hear me out, okay? I'm not... I'm not... You know what? If I can talk for a second. Obviously, I record these way in advance, so I have no idea if anybody's saying anything like this in the comments, but I'm not out to bash Enterprise, okay? I'm not. I'm not interested in it being good or bad, as weird as that may sound. As I've mentioned many times before, going through these shows with analysis mode on is something I want to do, regardless of the show, regardless of, you know, being paid to do this, and you guys being awesome, thank you for continuing to support me, you are amazing. No, I mean just because I like to challenge my own preconceptions lest they challenge me, deliberate quote. I mean that sincerely, though. I, I believe in that philosophy. So, going through these, I don't really have any expectation. That's really what I'm trying to say. Good or bad. I'm not expecting crap. I'm not expecting awesome or terrible or whatever. In fact, I'm not sure what I'll think of Season 3 when we get there. Or Season 4. Because... Any of you who watched as I was going through TNG and DS9, my opinions on several of those episodes changed, some for the better, and some for the worse. So, that brings us to this episode, which I barely remembered. The only thing I remembered about this episode was the joke at the beginning, which I will go ahead and make. Uh, not now. We're not there yet. But I liked this episode. Now, like I said, this is by Strong and Sussman, who... Uh, did a lot of Doctor episodes I don't care for over on Voyager, so there's not a lot of credit there. But again, they also do Damage and several Season 4 episodes, so obviously there's some talent there, at least by preconception. Haha. Uh -huh. And of course, this is David Livingston, who is probably, at the very least, tied for my overall favorite Star Trek director. As uh, Not counting Nicholas Meyer, he's kind of a separate case. Uh, as I've pointed out several, several, several times in both DS9, TNG, and I think he came up over in Voyager as well, Livingston has been a long-standing Star Trek director who is also part of the production team, as a.k.a. producer, and the man knows his stuff. He really knows how to do a lot of excellent things, including pulling tension into a scene. I realized towards the latter half, like in the Act 3, I was actually tense. Like, not really, not like, oh god, are they going to survive? Because, uh, duh. But I mean, like, there was actual tension on display. And the the realization of that just kind of surprised me as I'm just sitting here like, wait, really? We just had an episode with the Borg Light showing up, who are eating people's fluid, yum, yum, yum. And we can't stop them, we can't destroy them, and that, nothing. Nothing. But here, just a few people in a cave who are hallucinating, terrifying. But then again, 
I think a lot of that comes down to the performance. Trenier is amazing. I'm just going to say that really quick. I'll say it probably again later. And Livingston being able to pull a lot of that feel and vibe into the scenes. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. Kelly Waymire brings it, comes in as Cutler. She's also in... Uh, she was also in Muse, which is actually where I recognized her from back in Voyager. I actually liked that episode. That's another one that my opinion changed going through analysis mode. Uh, she's in two episodes after this one. Henry Lubari plays Novakovich. He's not in anything after this. I'll touch on that later. So what we have is two regular crewmen down in just the the galley, and they're like, oh my god, there's a planet, that's cool. And everyone's just kind of, you know, just a, just a little bit of kibitzing. It's not a full lower decks. It's just a quick switch of the camera angle to a new location, which is good. The camera, I've, I've often said that the camera needs to be free to move when it comes to shows like this. Because if it always stays on the bridge, then things get stale. And if it always follows one character, then things can get stale. It is very difficult to write a story where the camera never moves from one person's perspective. And it still is interesting. Harry Potter is actually one of the only exceptions I can think of off the top of my head. And that's, you know, that's that strays in and out of truth. But anyways, I like this. I wish they did more of this. I don't know if they will. So, one of the things I pointed out several times over on both TNG and DS9 was the recurring background characters, who half the time didn't even have a name, or if they did, it was only mentioned in their third or fourth appearance. You know, like the Dabo girl, whose name I can't remember, or the Ensign, Ensign Gates, I remember Ensign Gates, or the other Ensign who was a recurring character, or... So forth and so on. I'm not going to go down the list, but you probably know what I'm talking about. It was, it's, it's something that as, as a, as someone who will probably never get to actually make television, that's the kind of thing I would want to do. Recurring background characters, even if they only have a line or two, even if they only have like a background plot, which only shows up periodically in the distance, I would still want the same actors day after day because that adds an automatic element to the people watching it that, that, that most people probably aren't even aware of. Because they see that same people, and it adds a bit of grounding to it. It adds a bit of believability, and it adds a little bit of investment. You, you, you feel more, you may feel more, because you know the, that person and that person and that person, and they're there every week. And that also gives you storytelling potential, too. Because what if you take one of those people and pull them on, into the camera's view, which you can do a lot with, and then what if you... Well... Now, all of a sudden, it's someone who we've been seeing for weeks on end, just in the background. There's stuff you can do with this, is what I'm trying to say. And even Voyager played with this idea and got it wrong, but still tried several times, and in fact, actually did exactly what I talked about and ended up killing one of those background characters. Spoiler alert for Voyager. I'm not going to say who or what, just that's the thing that happened uh, in Voyager's run. So you get the idea... I don't know if they actually do this on Enterprise, so we'll have to watch as we're going through this to see, because as I mentioned, Cutler, by Kelly Waymire, she only gets three episodes, of which this is one. So, they have found an uncharted, unclaimed, that's important, uh, M-class planet, excuse me, Minshara-class planet. First of all, can I just say I like the fact that they tried to check if it's claimed. That's actually really cool, and I like that. Because, well, because I've studied real-life history. And one of the things that was extremely common was that people would send out ships, and they would land on an, 
a, a spit of land and say, it's mine, plant a few flags and then move on. And they may or may not follow through on that, depending. There's a lot of history, but the point is dropping down and saying, oh yeah, this is ours, and then moving on is extremely common. And, well, there's not really an interstellar community at this point in history. It's still burgeoning, to put it more accurately. Remember, there's no Federation yet. So Earth would just be Earth and kind of allied militarily with the Vulcan. So they've got the alliance, but that's it. That's about as far as that goes. There's a bunch of other races, some of whom have interacted with each other. We do know from that the Denobulans have interactions with other races because Phlox mentions that several times. We know the Vulcans maintain a diplomatic network, but that's usually an individual kind of a thing. We're still we're still kind of pushing out the boundaries, so to speak. So checking for... I'm, I'm sorry, again, as usual, I talk endlessly about stupid ideas, but I love that concept, and I love that they bother to slide that in there. No one's claimed it, though. So, let's go check it out. Okay. I mentioned the joke. <laughs> so, T'Pol says it's going to take her six or seven days to scan and check and probe and make sure everything's cool. They don't, because they're not willing to wait one week to make sure that a new planet is safe. I, I, I suppose this isn't really a joke, it's just I have heard this episode used as, as a joke about how horrifically unprepared they were many times. Because they go down and they hallucinogens that they didn't... Why didn't our scanners detect it? Well, first of all, as we've already established, your scanners suck. But second of all, you didn't really do your due diligence, did you? Let me ask you a question. How many of you would feel safe just being plopped down in the middle of a random forest here, now, in real life? Keep in mind how many different types of forests there are on this planet, and how many different types of threats there are. I want you to picture what that would be like. Picture the parasites, and the insects, and the diseases, and the um, predators, the temperature problems. There are... Try to picture getting food and water in one of those environments. Now, some of you may have had training to deal with that. Hypothetically, these people have too. I say hypothetically because they sure as hell don't uh, actually demonstrate that training. <laughs> so yeah, no, it's cool, it's cool. Once again, Archer decides to do something really stupid, basically just for frickin' cuz. Now, you heard me earlier mention how I like this episode, and so far, I haven't really been demonstrating that. A lot of why that is, I'm going to talk about in just a second. Because the next thing we see is Cutler tries to suck up, uh, be friendly with T'Pol, and T'Pol has a gargantuan stick up her ass, just for this episode. You'll notice she hasn't really been that stuck up in previous episodes. She preached once during the first dinner scene in Broken Bow. That's it. She's actually been fine. In fact, she's so far very quickly becoming my favorite character, at least in season one. I know we're only on three episodes, but whatever. You know, automatic gravitation. And no, not because of the cat suit. It's because she's an interesting character who's actually a competent commander. Funnily enough, she's also pretty good in this episode, too after the episode gets started. Now, this is the weird part, because the first part, she's just... She's a dick. She is written to be, uh, you know, just a complete shutting down, I'm not going to interact with you, screw you, 
uptight dick. And I actually have a note here. I was like, God, she's more uptight than she's been in the last two episodes that I remembered. New writers. So, by the way, you're probably thinking, oh, that's unfair. Well, I mean, it kind of is, but it's probably worth noting that these this episode was being written before the characters were even cast. Now, that, of course, makes a degree of sense, and hypothetically, you shouldn't need to know the actors in order to know their roles, but it does say a lot about how little, let's call it overall direction, mainlining, let's call it what it is, was done with regards to the show, because, as near as I can tell, there was basically none no show running of any substantial kind up until we get to season three. Moving on. So, they go down, um, and DePaul's a dick constantly. It's just a constant thing. She's she's got that. It's it's going back to that thing from the first episode, right, where the Vulcans were all the were the uptight camp counselor kind of a thing. Um, wh- why did they bring Porthos? Why did they bring Porthos? You know there's stuff here that's dangerous or unpleasant for a dog to eat that a dog will try to eat. That's completely ignoring any other problems that might arise from that. You don't know if this place is safe for you. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. Keeping in mind they bring down two species. I want to point that out too. Thankfully, the fact that they're different species actually has relevance in the episode, but... So, you know, T'Pol is uptight, and um, they roam around for a bit, just taking in the scenery. And this is probably, this is where I was like, oh, God, I don't want to watch this. And I remember this. I remember getting to the part where they're just roaming the woods, and that's when I quit last time, when I, when I tried to rewatch this episode, because it's just kind of boring and dumb. Like me, for example. Because... All they're doing is roaming around, and they could be doing large-scale landscape shots, and they kind of don't. They do these weird close shots in what is clearly just what what is effectively a small park, probably to keep the cost down. And while that makes sense, it absolutely ruins the moment. This is even further made bad by the scene leading up to that, which I know sounds in reverse, but hear me out for a second. It cuts to them. They're on the shuttle pod. The shuttle pod's going down, and they're like, Wow, this is amazing. And what uh, uh, Cutler actually says, oh, worth every light year. And there's just this sense of awe and wonder, which they do a good job of, which we don't see. You can't tell me it was that hard to be able to secure a minute or two of landscape footage from real life of one of the many hundreds, if not thousands, of beautiful vistas that exist in this world to show over that. Something. I could probably take my drone, because I do actually have a drone, up. I mean, I can't, because legality. But if, if I could, I could probably take my drone up from where I live, look a little bit southwest, and go out for a couple miles, which obviously my drone doesn't have that distance, but just bear with me. And I would be able to get beautiful vista footage. I live in the city. You know? Well, actually, I live in suburbia, but you get the idea. It's it... So, moving on. <sighs> so we don't see any beautiful stuff, and they just kind of wander around, and they don't take any info. I, I feel like that's becoming a recurring trend. If you know what, then you know how. 
that just kind of keeps circling back around. It's strange because the lack of information is exactly what causes the entirety of the problems of the episode. And that's why this episode kind of makes me go, ugh. Because I love the episode once it gets going. You'll notice we're not there yet. But the lead-up to it is nonsense. And I can just picture Huthor right now because I just switched over to Discord earlier. I, I, I pop onto Discord to degauze my brain briefly in between episodes uh, just to see what people are chatting about. And Huthor was like, I don't care about any of that. I care about the story. And I'm like, yeah, I care about that. I, I care about how stupid it is we have to, to just kind of... Okay. Okay, if I have to effectively chop out the first ten minutes of an episode to enjoy it, we have a problem. Because not only do they do not take any proper information, because Archer is a moron, but then a storm front shows up out of nowhere that no one detected in any shape or form. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we can tell where storm fronts are going roughly in real life now. They have a ship in space with terrible scanners, but also they have people on the ground ostensibly with scanning equipment because... This is a research mission. Why did nobody see this thing coming? Now, you're probably thinking, Laura, you're just being too ridiculous. Hang on a second. This is, and I wrote both of these figures down, an 80 kph wind storm, which is already insane, with roughly a 500 click width. This storm is larger than the state I lived in when I recorded this. And it, it, the, 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 the wind speed is so high that I would probably have trouble driving in it. I mean, I could do it, but... It, and this came out of nowhere that no one saw coming. When they finally detect the, st the storm, Reed casually walks down to Archer's thing and has a moment for a quick joke, but for it being like, by the way... the. I mean, I mean, this this feels like a Dilbert cartoon, doesn't it? Oh, hey, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wouldn't mind if playing volleyball. By the way, the crew's about to die. What? It just what? Just <clears throat> he even recommends that they go get them now because they are that he is that worried about them. You wouldn't know from his tone or posture. Oh my god. Hmm. <clears throat> Now, I've, I, I know I've kind of jumping around a little bit here, because there's this horrific storm of stupid. I want to comment on something, because we're almost at the part where I start enjoying the episode. We're almost there, I swear. I'm over halfway through my notes. They st Rewind a bit. Uh, Mayweather tells a ghost story, right? It's dumb. <laughs> I'm just going to skip over it. It's dumb. Not interested. T'Pol has to point out the obvious flaw, because that's her role in this episode. And I could just, like, I have literally nothing to say about that other than how it is in contrast to what immediately follows it. Now, this is going to sound really stupid and really dumb and really childish, but um, there's a video game called Spore that I actually really enjoy playing for certain specific aspects of it. One of those things that I really love to do is I like to have a good visual memory, I, I don't know what to call it, and remember, like, I, I look around once you first, because for those of you who haven't played sport, you start off uh, in the ocean as a creature that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you finally grow legs. You go onto the, you know, you go onto the shore and then you start running around in the creature phase. And there's all these different phases, right? You go from uh, cellular to creature to tribal to civilization to space, okay? That's the, the journey of the game. Now, 
when you get to the creature phase, I make it a point to look around and take in the terrain and just kind of try to visually remember it. Because when we get to the tribal phase, well, then we just kind of go through it because nothing really happens in the tribal phase. But when you get to the civilization phase, now you can see the whole planet. And I like to go and check. Like, okay, there, there, that's that's where it was. That's where I first landed on this planet. When, you know, when I when I come out, came out of the ocean, it was right there. Then one of the first things I do once I get my ship and do the initial tutorial of, of flying around the, the planet is I find that spot and then I kind of zoom around the planet and then I zoom out and I go to another planet within the system and land down, you know, get down to land level and look back at the planet I just came from. Um, then I sneeze. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt the story, but, you know, whatever. Nothing I can do about that. I look back at the planet that I that I have come from and I have spent the last several hours of my life playing on. And, I don't know, something about doing it that way. I do this almost every time I played Spore back in the day. Something about doing it that way helps give me perspective. It helps make it mean something more, you know. Like, oh, God, that's that's where I was. That's where I came from. And that's awesome, and I love doing that. And that's exactly what this episode does. I'm sorry, one moment. Because what this episode does is it has a moment where they're sitting there and Cutler points at the stars and says, that's soul. Like, you sure? Yeah, no, positive. And there's actually a really good moment as they all just sat there looking at the stars, looking at their star. And that's why I went through all those steps of telling you that. Because the the episode doesn't. <laughs> the show has not earned that moment. But the moment itself still kind of struck a chord. And I, again, I feel like this is down to the performances and Livingston for pulling something into a scene that, honestly, the scene hadn't earned. Because it's a good moment. Then the storm hits. Stupid, 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 stupid. We're walking, we're walking. And... Um... <laughs> Tucker, I, I shouldn't laugh. Tucker has a scorpion in his his thing, and of course he freaking does. He's camping. That's how that works. That's why I don't camp anymore. That's not a joke. And <laughs> what insert when Sue's actually made me laugh. It's just it's basically just him and Travis just kind of riffing as to pull as li like listening from afar, and she pulls out the communicator. And is like, do you need help? Are, are you okay over there? <laughs> no, I'm fine. It's just a bug. Just give me my face pistol. You're going to shoot the bug? Yes, I'm going to shoot the bug. I'm not going to kill it. I'm just going to stun it. Why are you going to squash? Can you squash it? I can squash anything I want as long as it's in my... Like, that, that actually got me. I was actually amused. And this is, like I said, this is officially when I started enjoying the episode. Because what happens is they... The episode has been portraying to Paul in a negative light consistently. Now that sucks, and is kind of out of character, but it makes sense, because what is then, what then happens is a twofold punch. First, we, the viewers, actually see some of the hallucinations the characters have. Now the early hallucinations are done very particularly. They're done believably. The first and most obvious one is the audio, the bit that, you know, I thought I heard something. The second is Travis, who just sees a couple people wandering through the set. 
you know, in uniform. It looked like they actually had Enterprise uniforms on. It's like, okay. And it's done in a way that it looks like it's absolutely real. Nothing about that indicates that it's fake. It's only when we get to the rock monster, which looks incredibly fake, and a weird visual pulses and stuff, that that then begins to be like, okay, that's, that's nonsense. But for the first few hallucinations, they are legit, or at least they look legit. And I like this because that then makes you think, oh, God, what horrible thing is on this planet? Uh, the answer is the pollen is the horrible thing on this planet. That's the, the danger. I like that a lot. Instead of the threat of the week being an alien or an enemy or a ship, it's literally just the environment. And the only reason I have to add an asterisk to this is if they'd done their frickin' job, they would have known walking into it, and the episode wouldn't have happened. This is the weird thing, because then what happens is uh, the pod comes down to save them and fails, because if it had successfully rescued them at that point, the episode would be over. I only have one complaint about this entire section of the episode. Ign the setup is stupid. I, I, whatever. But... I have the term the cloud effect for a reason. On the off chance you don't know what that means, the cloud effect is a really dumb premise for a good result. Uh, this, this is obviously named after Voyager, but also can apply to many aspects of fiction. So we got a dumb premise, but, but we've got a good episode. Except for the one complaint I have, which is when the pod comes down really, really, really close. Like, I know visuals and, and special effects, but honestly, it looks like it's maybe, maybe 30 meters in the air by the end there. And then they're like, nope, and then they peace out. This would probably be a good time to mention that they're trying to get people on the ground while the wind shear is apparently much worse at ground level. Now, I actually am not a meteorologist, but last I checked, wind gets worse further up, not further down. Now, there's probably more debris going around because 80 kph wind, but still... <laughs> What I'm trying to say is that the fact that the pod can't land is stupid. It's a stupid premise. This is made even stupider because they try to beam someone up in the midst of this storm. I remind you, up to this point in time, they have beamed exactly one other person. Also, not in ideal circumstances, but still... I would also, also remind you that if the transporter wasn't even available, this would be even more terrifying than otherwise presented. Of course, however, the transporter has to exist because they have to get one person up so they can understand the full nature of the threat, so they could have the ticking clock. Otherwise, there's no threat, no tension. I mean, there can't be any possible drama or tension from psychotic crew members who are currently massively hallucinating while pointing guns at each other. And now you see why I think that could just be ejected entirely, and we'd be fine. Get rid of the... Like, okay, you can't land the shuttle. Okay, I'm actually fine with that. Have the shuttle not even get close. Not even a visual. Like, we can't even see you. We're not... We're still a few kilometers in the air. We just can't get further down. Get back and cover. Okay, okay. You know, sure, fine. And then, don't beam anyone up. Now, <laughs> hear me out for a second, though. The episode really starts to unveil where the episode is going because they accuse T'Pol of talking with people, which we see, from Cutler's perspective, T'Pol talking to some random aliens. And so Cutler says with total and calm sincerity that T'Pol is lying. And T'Pol says, well, no, I'm not. And she says it in kind of a stuck-up way. 
This is how you use slanting to good effect, by the way. I still think the premise is dumb, but this is actually kind of neat, because the audience is now automatically inclined against Paul. Not only because she's stuck up, but because the way she's acting is in that, huh. It's when you kind of deny something, it tends to make people more likely to think that it's true, especially when it isn't. You, you know, that there's a term for that. I don't know what it is, but you know what I'm talking about, that concept. So we're kind of pushing against Paul. And this whole thing just kind of is, is unraveling. And it really becomes interesting the moment Tucker pulls a gun onto Paul. And that's the moment where it's like, huh. Now, the reason I bring that up specifically is because, and this is actually kind of clever, Tucker was the voice of reason. But in the space of, he was. He was the one trying to calm everything down and try to get everything under order. Of course it is. He, he is supposed to be an actual commander and supposed to actually be the kind of person who can be in charge properly. We have yet to see that. But nevertheless, he does make the effort. Then in two scenes, he descends into pointing a gun at T'Pol and ranting about how the Vulcans suck and have been holding back the human race. This is what really shows what's going on. We don't actually find out about the hallucinogen for three or four more scenes. But this then veils it perfectly, showing, not telling. We see here, okay, something's up. And... Again, this is why I really give praise to Mr. Trenier, because he absolutely nails the segue from, you know, perfectly reasonable and, you know, kind of lightly joking about a bug in his thing to, I'm going to kill every last one of you. And he plays it beautifully. He really does an excellent job. And I do want to give credit to Jolene Blaylock as well, because she also does an excellent job of portraying a Vulcan who is being pushed to her limits while simultaneously being affected by a mind-altering drug. So the two of them acting off of each other is really the strength of the episode. Which is funny, because I'm going to say that for several episodes in the future, too. I'm going to bring this up now. I was curious when the first time I would see it. I didn't think I'd see it by the third episode. I am really big on that effervescent and immaterial concept I like to call chemistry which basically boils down to how well actors play off of or with each other. Now, some people have assumed, because I've had to describe this a few times to people over the years, um, some people assume that chemistry means they just gel perfectly, but that's not quite it, because you can have antagonists who have excellent chemistry, or you can have people who hate each other, or people who love each other, or people who you know just barely tolerate each other, but the, the chemistry is the nature of how well they just work and interact as actors relative to their characters. So you can see how certain... Uh, okay, I'm going to go ahead and say this. Nana Visitor and Mark Alemo had pretty good chemistry. It's probably one of the reasons why the dynamic between those two, an antagonistic dynamic, was so interesting throughout the course of D-Space Nine. And I can name many, many, many other examples of this. I have said for many years that the main reason Voyager was so good was because so many of the actors just gelled perfectly with each other from day one. You'll notice I've not been saying that about Enterprise. By memory, there were only two actors I remembered really having good chemistry with each other, and I just talked about them. Jolene Blaylock and Connor Tremere. Uh, Tremere, Tremere, I even looked up how to pronounce it. Uh, that is to say, Tucker and T'Pol. I think the two act off each other really well, and I think it's apparent even in this episode. Uh, the the antagonism the antagonism the the dynamic the attempt at discussion which then dissolves into further chaos it's it's very well played this of course then uh, 
leads even more to the idea of why this is a terror episode. This is a ghost story. No, it kind of really is. It's a hallucinogen, which will kill them for some reason. And the ghost story, you know, the elements of that. I mean, think about it. Okay. Even if the hallucinogen will not kill them, you have crazy people with access to weapons that can kill each other, pointing them at each other. That's the threat. That's the drama. That's the danger. You might say, well, without the hallucinogen killing them, they might just get out of the scot-free. First of all, we know they're going to get out of the scot-free. But second and more importantly, there's nothing saying they're not going to start shooting, especially with two guest stars on board, two, two you know, red shirts, let's call it what it is. Which leads me to something interesting. So they beam aboard uh, Novakovich, which, sure, whatever. Um, that also leads to probably the grossest thing uh, in all of Enterprise, actually, in, in terms of just visual blah for me. Props to the crew who did the makeup did the job on that, I guess. Um, Flox looks at him. He's like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and figure out about this hallucinogen. Sure would have been nice to have that info beforehand. You'll notice that Archer hasn't really been in this episode, by the way. I hate to speculate, but I think the relative focus off of Archer is part of why I enjoy this episode. I mean, I don't know if that's true. That's that's pure conjecture. It's just, you notice how Archer isn't really in this episode? Anywho. So Archer then immediately irritates me um, by, first of all, being a moron. He was just told about this hallucinogen, and he tries to contact them, and they start freaking out. And his response is, what? What are you talking about? I w and then he then he explains the hallucinogen badly, because, you know, that's the most logical thing to do. And then he manages to calm them down by doing what Janeway always does. I, I, mean, I mean, what Archer always does by saying, that's an order. I actually complained about this before. It kind of irritates me how that's an order is treated as if they are magic words to a spell that miraculously helps them to get another willpower save throughout Star Trek. That is especially true on Voyager. And it actually legitimately irritated me how many times Janeway would try to reach out to someone and convince them of something by saying that's an order rather than anything else whatsoever. <laughs> so Archer pulls the that's an order makes perfect sense, sure, whatever. It works. Hear me out for a second. This is why I'm willing to give this a bit of a pass. This is when they find out about the storm that they didn't connect it being 500 clicks large, and this is when Novakovich dies! No, he's fine. Okay, so in the original script, and it's really obvious watching this, Novakovich did die. He died as a result of this. Now, during during the production of this episode, when the script was already written, Scott Bakula reached out to them and said, that, no. And they were like, why? And he was like, well, Archer needs to mourn this. This is the first death of his crew member. This can't be treated like a red shirt. Credit to Bakula. I actually incredibly agree with him. In fact, I looked it up a bit. It will be almost two full seasons before someone finally dies on this show. And as weird as this may sound... I like that. Not because death, you know, that you should be afraid to kill off your characters, but rather, if you're going to kill off your character, make it frickin' mean something. This is something every other Star Trek has screwed up. All of them. Every other Star Trek show. Not counting Discovery of Picard, which I still haven't seen. 
has screwed up the red shirt concept and just had deaths because now, now it's serious, right? No, no, it's a joke. No one gives a damn. That's the problem. The idea of killing off a redshirt and having that be a big deal, well, that ties into what I was talking about earlier, doesn't it? So instead, Novakovich lives, but as you can see, the episode is very clearly framed as if he dies. In fact, he has no scenes or lines after his death scene, and they just mention off in a, in a one-off during another unrelated scene. No, he's fine. Now, the reason I bring all that up, in addition to my earlier point, is that Phlox does a great job of the scene where he dies. Uh, huge credit to the actor. Uh, he, um, there's this sort of, um, like he's just a little bit emotionally stunned, and obviously he blames himself horribly, because there was no need to check for that particular type of test. Why would there be? But if I had checked that, then I would have found this out earlier and might have saved his life. And the way he portrays that you can just tell this has actually slammed into him. Once again, Flox is quickly becoming my second favorite character on this show, although he will probably be surpassed by Tucker in the end. But still, I, I'm really digging this. I'm really digging his portrayal because it's obvious that this matters to him. And I know you're saying, well, duh, he's a doctor. As weird as this may sound, that's not assumed. Okay? Like, you still need the actor to do a good portrayal in order for that to have any weight. He does credit given. So, this is this is when the episode almost lost me, because then Archer's like, alright, that's in order. Thankfully, that fails. Actually, if we're being honest, the earlier that's in order only bought him a few minutes or hours or whatever. This that's in order fails almost immediately. So, that's why I'm willing to give this a little bit of a pass. He then has to actually try something. He has to do his whole maneuvering. And, and this is, like I said, well, this is when the tension was really at its most. With two main character members, uh, both of whom are out of their gourd. One of them who can't even speak different languages at the moment properly. So she's just kind of having issues. And, you know, they've got the guns pointed at each other. And Archer's trying to be like, okay, listen. There's the rock people. I don't question. I need you to do this for me. Because, but you know, this whole pageantry thing. And... Again, Trenier is, is actually, like, on the ver I'm, I'm overselling it so you can see it, but, you know, just, just shaking over there. Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll lower my gun. All right. You know, and then... Vulcan neck pinch, which, honestly, I just want you to remember that because that's going to come up in, like, three seasons. And, um... Then, then they wake up and they're okay because the hallucinogen just started coming out and the toxin's gone... Also, by the way, I hate to point this out, but they beamed down the, the sample flock, that Flocks gave them to help them um, through the storm into a cave. Once again, I feel like the toxin thing could have just been ejected entirely, and this, the solution could have been just shooting Tucker and allowing the toxin to filter out of them since they're in the cave and not actively breathing it, but whatever. And by toxin, I mean the hallucinogen, sorry, because the toxin wouldn't even exist. The episode ends on a good bit, though. Again, Tucker has some good chemistry uh, with with T'Pol, and he mentions Velik. He gives the quote that I gave earlier, challenge your preconceptions or they'll challenge you. It's a good quote. And you can kind of see how that works surprisingly well. And like I said, I enjoyed this episode a lot more than I thought I would. 
I have to add a lot of asterisks and caveats, but I'm kind of glad we went through this one. I do think it could stand to have a rewrite, and apparently there was still a story by credit for Burma and Braga, so that might explain some of the issues I have with it. But regardless, this was at least better than I thought it was. So already, my preconceptions are being challenged. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, I don't remember what episode's next. I don't, I don't have season one and two of T Enterprise memorized at all, so... Like, I... I I just want to share this really quick before we cut off. I actually peeked ahead. I always do this just to give myself an idea of what I'm looking at for the next bundle of episodes I'll be covering in a day. And I was looking at the summaries and I was like, I don't remember that one. I don't remember that one either. I think I remember that one. No, I don't remember that one. It gets really bad by season two. <laughs> I'll see you there, guys.